What to do if a hippo bites through your canoe? You're right about it, of course. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from a man who's ventured with his wife to all seven continents with some truly wild adventures in mind. My goal was down in the Amazon to find a fertile lance, which is the deadliest snake in the Western Hemisphere. Coming up, Marty Essen tells us what it's like to get up close to some of the planet's most amazing creatures, great and small, in their natural habitat. There's just nothing more awe-inspiring than having a humpback whale come up to you. Oh, it was incredible. And we'll open the phones to check in with our listeners today on a couple of topics. Let's share some of the faux pas we've encountered in our travels overseas. For instance, cultures where a shake of the head no can mean something entirely different. And let's also hear some of your tips for packing light and still being able to look good in your travels. Good wrinkles in our travels and Marty Essen's wild adventures. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for coming along. We'll meet a man who's been to every continent to encounter all creatures great and scary. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start today by opening the phones on two topics. Tell us about your cross-cultural faux pas and what you learned from them. And to help us travel without excess baggage, we'd also like to hear your tips on packing light. You know, with my work, I'm supposed to get it right when I'm traveling. And uh, actually, I don't get it right all the time, and it's so fun to screw up. It's so fun to be a beginner in cultures that do things differently. In some countries, you nod your head up and down to mean yes, and in other countries, that might mean no. In some countries, you can touch people with one hand and not the other. Uh, there's lots of faux pas waiting for us. And with the right attitude, these become a fun way to carbonate your travel experience. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. And you can share your screw-ups with us on email at radio at ricksteves.com. Okay, David's on the line in Los Angeles. David, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. We yeah. enjoy your program. Well, thanks for watching and listening. And... Uh, do you travel perfectly, like never messing up? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we made many mistakes. It's kind of fun to make mistakes, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because um, you discover something you wouldn't have otherwise found. And you become sometimes a little more approachable to locals who might otherwise not, uh, n- not connect with you. That's true, yeah. So, so tell us an example of uh, a little flub you did on the road. So this was in southern China in Fujian, and... We were like the second American family to uh, actually stay there. We stayed there for a whole school year. So English was uh, not spoken very well. And we went into a Chinese restaurant with our daughters, and uh, the daughters loved the beautiful fish, and they, um, they thought it was an aquarium. And the gentleman reached in, threw it down, killed it on the street, which was the custom, so you'd know it was fresh. Um, and my daughters still haven't gotten over the shock. One of them is a full vegetarian ever since. So wait a minute. Your daughter, this is in southern China, your daughter just looked in an aquarium and said, oh, I like the fish. Yes. And the man said, oh, you like it? I'll grab it, kill it, and let you eat it. Yes. Wow. That yeah. was a lesson for her. Yeah. There were also cats and dogs in that market. But like I say, it was a very back area. It wasn't Shanghai. And they hadn't had many foreigners there. So it's so interesting to travel in a place where people have not been exposed to foreigners. Every time yes. I, I, that's happened to me a couple of times, and I just—it's like a wonderland. I was in Turkey once, and in, uh, in a hotel, and I gave them a postcard, like you do in a hotel, for them to mail it. And they looked at it and they said, "Very good," and they gave it back to me. They thought I was just sharing my postcard with them. It's, there's all sorts of people that you bump into that just don't know how to respond to you. So I guess you've got to be careful when you say, yes, you might uh, get something going that you don't intend to get going. Yeah, usually it can be worked out. People are very forgiving. That's why it's so easy to learn language overseas, too. Oh, yeah. And uh, next time you're in southern China, if you, if you feel like uh, eating a fish, just say, I like that fish. Exactly. All right, David, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much. We'll enjoy listening to the program. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye. And Louise in St. Peter's uh, emailed us, and she writes, French kisses. I learned the hard way what a real French kiss is during my first introduction to a French person. I said my name, and the other person said their name. I put my hand out to shake their hand, but the other person leaned their head closer to my head. Thinking they misunderstood me, I just repeated my name louder. Mid-repronunciation, I received a kiss on my cheek. 
That sure surprised my American self. That was used to my bubble of personal space. Yeah, when you're in France, uh, you don't shake hands. You kiss each other on the cheek, and that's something that uh, it takes a little getting used to, and then it becomes uh, quite a nice uh, feature of being in France. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking cultural faux pas, and all of us in our travels have made a few uh, little mistakes because we don't completely understand the culture, and it's your time to share your lessons. We've got Rachel on the line, and uh, Rachel's in Chicago. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Very well. Big fan of yours. Thank you for uh, sharing uh, some of your embarrassing moments in travels on our show. Tell us about your story. It always has to do with language, or often. The... Word in Spanish for preservatives is not the word that sounds like it. So one of my friends actually did this first, and then I was extra careful and then did it again myself, where she was at dinner with a number of friends and remarked on how everything's so fresh and good, like that the bread has no preservatives, but she said, preservativos instead of conservadores, and so she actually told them that the bread's so good it doesn't have any condoms in it. Oh, that sounds yeah. just uh, not my idea of a appetizing piece of bread. Exactly. You learned a little bit of your language that way, so conservativo would be preservatives? Mm, conservador. Conservador, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. all right, Rachel, thanks. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Marty's on the line in Lincoln, Nebraska. Marty, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Have you ever um, made a mistake overseas? Oh, I certainly have, and and it was quite embarrassing. Tell us about it. It turned out to be sort of a a business misunderstanding until I was able to clarify what was going on. I had made a trip to India, to New Delhi, to interview a candidate for a distributorship for my company's product. And there are certain qualifications that I, I must find out and sort of an interview process to qualify a company or individuals who want to distribute and sell our our company's products. And, for example, I want to know, are they able to make repairs, you know, to our products should a customer buy them? Sure. So during the course of the interview process, I began to ask some questions, and each time I asked a question, the response that I got immediately was their heads would shake back and forth. Like no. Indicate, indicating no. And about the third no in a row, things were not going well. Yeah. I was thinking, well, this is not, this is not the company for me. Uh, so I called for a break, and I took aside one of the, the gentlemen that I'd gotten to know a little bit better, and I explained that, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to go too well. Everybody's saying no. Everybody's indicating that they're not interested. And then he explained to me that that, that mannerism, that shaking of the head, means yes. Now, what country was this in? This was in India. In India. Okay. So there's many countries where you can have that fundamental difference, that shaking the head no is like yes. And I had thought I did my homework, but not deep enough. So did you go home with the deal? Yes, I did. Once we got things clarified and I understood where we stood, uh, they were a good company for us. And when you got home, your boss said, uh, was it a successful trip? And you shook your head no. <laughs> <laughs> Great story, Marty, and I think that's a good heads up for all of us when we're in the Indian subcontinent to remember. Certainly taught me a lesson. Yes, yes. All right, thanks for your call, Marty. You bet. Thank you. Faux pas. As you travel, you know, it's easy to mess up. We don't understand these cultures, and we make some innocent mistakes. We've had some travelers that have sent us emails uh, sharing their faux pas. Nancy in Aurora, Illinois, she says... While in Italy, my husband developed athlete's foot, which I couldn't find in the dictionary. I told the pharmacist in Italian that my husband has mushrooms growing between his toes. It worked. We got athlete's foot powder. Good idea, Nancy. And Marilyn's on the phone from Moscow, Idaho. Marilyn, thanks for your call. Hi. Do you have a lesson you've learned overseas that you'd like to share? Well, I do. Uh, we went um, to Turkey, had a wonderful time, and we were in a small uh, village, uh, just a wonderful village with all the fruits and vegetables and children, and there was this marvelous old woman who just had years of experience on her face, and she was sitting with um, uh, you know, the inside-out goat um, stomach with the cheese in it, and it was just such a perfect picture, and I held my camera up to indicate, because of course I can't say in Turkish, can I take your picture, and um, I held my camera up, and she 
through her head in a uh, kind of an up and down movement, and I thought she was saying yes, and I happily took my picture, and she gave me the stare of death. Um, honestly, I'm thinking I did something terribly wrong, and so I asked about it later. Well, apparently when you throw your head back like that in Turkey, it means no, absolutely not. And so I felt very embarrassed, of course, and, by the whole And thing. throwing the head back, it comes back down, and it looks like a nod yes, doesn't it? Yes. Wow. Marty was in India, and they were nodding their head negative, meaning yes, and you're in Turkey, and they're nodding their head affirmative, meaning no. That's right. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So it's always good to have a guide around to ask all those important questions. Yeah, that reminds me once I was in Turkey with one of our groups, and I was was just in a spunky, adventurous mood, and we were on the border of Georgia, way over in the east of Turkey, after the Soviet Union fell apart, and I just wanted to get our group into Georgia a little bit, and... I thought, well, what the heck, we'll, uh, we'll see how far we get. And we left our bus, and it was it was raining, and we're walking through all these puddles. And this was, the guards were like, they looked like Boy Scouts with no medals on their uniforms. They were just not very imposing looking. And we kept going deeper and deeper into the border, and I kept saying, uh, Georgia, or no problem. And they say, no problem, no problem, no problem. So we got deeper and deeper, and finally I realized they were saying, no, problem. You see, it was like... <laughs> No, you can't go. This is a problem. But I, I understood it as no, no problem. Uh, so when we're in Turkey, especially, you meet a lot of people, don't you? And uh, they're bold. Turks just want to make it happen one way or another. And you can get yourself into a yes problem, I think, if you're not careful. Well, the truth is the people there are so wonderful and they are so nice that you just think anyone would be accommodating. But this woman was obviously very traditional and yep. and everything. So, well, I'm certainly glad you lived to tell your story. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there is a sensitivity in Turkey. The people are just dear. They're wonder- One of the greatest things about Turkey is the people you meet. But some of them are very sensitive about uh, photography. And there's even a religious thing uh, among some people. They think when you snap their picture, you might be capturing their spirit that might make it tough for them to get uh, eternal life, or I don't completely understand it, but there is that sort of uh, consideration. Well, I um, I thought, well, I, I destroyed the picture. I never showed it to a soul, thinking, well, maybe her, her soul will be salvaged that way. You Good know? for you, uh, Marilyn. That was a yeah, thoughtful right. thing to do. <laughs> well, thanks for your uh, report on uh, shaking your head the wrong way in Turkey. Happy travels. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking, learning from the Traveler's School of Hard Knocks. And uh, William in Vacaville, California, emails us, and he said, Just a note for you all. Our numerous faux pas all have one common theme. They provide us laughs forever. They are never forgotten pleasures. William, that's a great note to sign off on as we remember when we travel. We're all beginners, and we make mistakes, and we learn from them, and we laugh with the locals as they laugh, I hope, with and not at us. Happy travel. Let's switch gears next as we keep the lines open at 877-333-RICK. We all know that packing light freezes up from lost luggage and wasting time at the baggage carousel, so let's hear your tips on how you pack light. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Wherever you travel, there's one skill that matters a lot, and it's packing smartly. And almost always, travelers will agree that packing smartly means packing light. I mean, you'll learn now or you'll learn later. It's really important to pack light. Think about it. Have you ever met anyone who, after five trips, brags, every year I pack heavier? 
No, with experience, you get serious. You get fanatic about packing light. Now, the flip side of packing light is packing in a way that lets you have fun and, and do what you want to do, feeling good about yourself. So you can't pack too light. You just got to take the right stuff. So right now we're going to talk to some people and, and get some tips on how you can enjoy your travels and have what you need and still be mobile. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Judy's on the line in Hagerstown, Maryland. Judy, thanks for your call. Well, hello. Hi. You got some ideas on packing? I sure do. I always save all of my old underwear and socks and things, and I take those on my trips, and I wear them once, and I throw them away. So I don't have to wash anything out, usually, unless it's a really long trip. And I usually take, like, one black skirt and a couple blouse and some really cheap costume jewelry that looks good so if I lose it it doesn't matter and that's what I wear when I go out to dinner if it's for a dressy occasion or something. So you find that in, no matter how you're traveling you want to go out and, and have a nice dinner and you want to dress in a way that uh, feels right and uh, again review what, right. you, what you do then because you're packing pretty seriously light here and what works for you when you go out for a nice dinner? I take one black skirt uh-huh. And I always have a pair of black flats that I wear during the day, uh-huh. along with another pair of walking shoes. And so I always have black shoes. And then I just take a couple silk blouses that look nice. They're easy to wash if I have to wash them. And some very inexpensive jewelry. Now, you like black, is that right? Why do you wear black? I do, because I think that it sort of fits in with everywhere, you know? And it's very and then, it's very European. If you happen to be in Europe, it, it seems like everybody's it, wearing black. It is very European, and the blouses are usually pretty colorful. Okay, actually. so colorful blouse with a black uh, skirt or pants. I wear very bright blouses, and then, but I always have a black skirt. And, and you are very correct. It is very European to wear black. All Everybody right. wears black over there. Now, you know, a lot of people tell me they bring their old undies and old socks and old shirts and old bras. They wear them and then throw them away. Well... That must be for a short trip. I mean, I'm going for two months, and uh, I, I just bring what I like, and I wash it, and I use it again and again and again. And that's fine. And I have gone, my longest trip has been almost a month over there. Right. And so I will save stuff, and I'll throw it away and use that. And once I'm through that, then I always have a few things that I can wash out. Okay. One thing you got to remember when you do that is conscientious uh, cleaning staff in hotels will think you might have forgotten something. So if I leave something behind in the hotel room, I'm careful to put it in the garbage can because if you just leave it in a drawer, they'll actually track you down. They'll mail it back to your home sometimes, right. and that's that's unfortunate. Well, I always throw it in the trash bin. Good bin, idea. Always. But, you know, it's fun, and it works for me, and it gives me more room for purchases. Well, that's important. So you, you kind of have a... Sort of an equilibrium there. You, you leave with a bunch I of do. disposable stuff, and you come home with a bunch of new stuff. And if it's stuff exactly. you, you can wear, you maintain a, a, a same level of uh, how many uh, bras you've got with you, right? That's right. And All I right. love to go shopping over in London, so it Yeah. Works. Okay, thanks. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Okay, nice talking to good you. Good tips. Thank you, Judy. Okay, bye. And Salini's on the line in Rochelle, Illinois. Salini, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. My favorite traveling tip is women should always bring a pashmina, which is one of those lightweight scarves. You can wrap yourself up if you're cold. You can dress up any outfit. If it starts raining, you can cover your head, and that's what they all wear in Europe. Really? So this is just like a big, uh, like a big ground cloth, a shawl. No, it's <laughs> yes, it's like a shawl, like okay. a scarf. Now, maybe this is what Ashley in, in Lahaina, Hawaii, emailed us, and she said, Ladies, it's a towel, bathing suit cover-up, bathrobe, skirt, dress with a few safety pins, maximize your style options, scarf, shawl, even a carry-all. It's indispensable. Is that what you're talking about? I totally agree with her. She's used them more than I did, but, you know, it's what they wear in Europe, so I think it's uh, part of, you know, it's a learning experience. You see what they wear, and you adapt it to your needs, and... So many times I've used it and, you know, make you look more elegant. Can you throw it on a park uh, grass and, and uh, use it to lay down and sunbathe or something like that? Uh, I, you know, I haven't done that, but you could definitely use for that. And also for, you know, if you're going to a church and you're wearing something that they consider immodest, 
that would allow you to go into church. All right. Now, here's uh, Carrie from San Francisco. She emails us also, and she says, Ladies, invest in a real Pashima shawl, not a cotton one. It's so warm and lightweight, it doubles as an airline blanket, smaller than a jacket in a day pack, covers your hair and shoulders in churches and mosques, and dresses you up for the theater. I've been a flight attendant for 24 years, and I never leave home without one. That's Carrie in San Francisco talking, just like you, about the wonders of a Pashima. Uh, Pashmina, is that what it's called? Pashmina. Yes, it is. And uh, Pashmina is just its own special type of cloth. It's kind of like a cashmere, but it's made from yak. So uh, it's really lightweight. They actually call it a ring pashmina. You can actually put it through your ring. It, you can it pull holds it, up really. It's so thin you can pull it through your ring. So that's what Carrie yeah. is talking about when she says a real pashmina. Yeah. So it's really light. Wow. That sounds very clever. And it follows that wonderful guideline of bring stuff that has multiple uses. Exactly. All right. Hey, well, thanks for your tip. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking packing smart. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. Tom is on the line in Newport Beach, California. Hi, Tom. Hey, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for the call. Yeah, I had a quick question about your packing light. I've been trying to convert all my friends to your system, and some of them found it works. But uh, so far, I've been going to Europe in warm climate, and I wondered if, like, going to uh, the regions and the off-seasons when it gets colder, how do you still pack light, mm. but with uh, warmer climates where it's cool or if maybe possibly raining? Yeah, I'm glad you're an evangelical for the importance of packing <laughs> light, the gospel of packing light. Right. I mean, boy, it's important. Think of it. You'll never meet anybody who, after five trips, brags every year, I pack heavier. With experience, you get serious about packing light. Now, you know, that's easy when you're going to warm climates. Uh, if you're going to a place that you can expect rain or cold weather— you know, you've you've got to pack appropriately. In in Britain, they say there's no bad weather. There's just inappropriate clothing. I'll tell you, I don't pack for rain unless I'm going to Britain or Ireland or Scandinavia. Uh, then I bring something that's going to be waterproof. Uh, and Europe's relatively good weather, in at least in season. I layer it for warmth. But if I'm going off-season, even if I'm going to Italy in the off-season, I will pack almost like I'm skiing. I'll take mittens, I'll take a hat and a scarf, a down coat, I'll take long underwear. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean I'm packing real heavy. It doesn't make a huge difference in how much I take because you're wearing it most of the time when you're out and about. But it's um, really important not to be cold because don't measure it by just the temperature. You know, oh, 40 degrees, uh, well, that's not a big deal when I'm at home. Well, that's because you're going from your car into work or from your car to home or into the shop. When you're in Europe, you want to be out on the streets for extended periods of time. I find that the walking tour guides in Europe, they they take the weather in stride. They're out there all day long and they're dressed appropriately. And the people who are able to concentrate on what they're saying on those guided tours, the people who are not shivering, you don't want to hear your teeth chattering. You want to hear your guide talking. And that means I would bring enough gear so that I can be out and about for hours at a stretch, regardless of the temperature in the winter and still enjoy myself. That includes shoes. Your feet will be cold if you bring a light pair of shoes. I bring a heavy pair of shoes. In fact, when I go in the winter, I've got my Echoes, and normally they're the low sort of level walking echo, but I've got this high top echo goes up to the top of my ankle, which is uh, much warmer. And I've I've found that that's one of my favorite tips in the winter is and to bring a waterproof. Waterproof, exactly. Waterproof and high top with a heavy sole. All right, that's great. I found that uh, some of those new merino wool products. They're very lightweight and uh, they keep you warm, wet or cold. Yeah, and Uh, I'm not that up to date on it, but I know that a lot of people really are very uh, energetic about getting all the information and the options that way, and there's some great new stuff. We have a discussion going on on our graffiti wall at ricksteves.com. At our website, there's a bunch of different topics where I just ask the question and let everybody share their experience, and and there's a lot of good lessons from experience out there on taking advantage of the latest in these materials. Especially for the hiking uh, travel, adventure travel gear, it all matches your uh, traveling light. It's important to have the gear you need, but, you know, coming from a wealthy society as we do, I think we're raised to be prepared for the worst scenario. And I challenge people to really pack for the best scenario. Don't bring everything just because you might need it. Um, I suppose the exception is when it comes to being warm and, and, and weatherproof, uh, you need to be that if you're going to be out and about, especially in the winter or in northern Europe. Great. Well, thank you very much. I always appreciate your comments. Thanks, Tom, and uh, good luck on your next trip. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Betsy's on the line in Richmond, Maine. Betsy, thanks for your call. Hello. Hi, Rick. Hi. Got an idea for packing smartly? Uh, an idea for packing smartly, I think, is uh, the best one I've seen online is to start with the bag size that you want to carry. 
and then when it's full, you stop. Um, if you don't start with the bag first, then the next thing you know, you've got too much stuff. Um, that's just what I've found in my experience. You know, it seems almost too obvious, but I think it's brilliant, you know. Uh, if you have too big a bag, you'll fill it up. I remember when I was first traveling, I bought the biggest backpack I could find, and I was very creative in finding ways to fill it up because I had that capacity. Now I give myself a self-imposed limit, 9 by 22 by 14 inches. That's what I can carry under the airplane, and I manage with that, and I manage with that quite easily. Yes. I would like to ask your opinion. Um, I see it online frequently. Some people say to take a small bit of laundry and wash it, and other people say take a bunch of laundry and throw it out as you go along. And the first people get very upset reading about the throwaways, and then, of course, the throwaway people get very upset that anyone would criticize them. Have you? How, how do you prefer? Well, I kind of want to stay out of the fray, but for the life of me, I don't understand why you'd take crummy stuff over there and throw it away. Throw it away now, take good stuff, wear it, and wash it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I live out of my bag for four months out of the year, and I get all these people that come to be breathless with their excitement about, I bring crummy stuff, <laughs> stuff I don't want anymore, and I wear it on my vacation so I can throw it away. And I just, it just doesn't add up to me. I, I, it's yeah. a very common tip. And I don't understand it. My, my little guilty pleasure is I often pay the hotel to wash my clothes, you know. And uh, it's, yeah. you know, it's not cheap, but it's just my time is very valuable when I'm in Europe and, and I do that. Otherwise, I, I look at washing my clothes as exercise. I do it before I take a shower because I'm going to be all sweaty and exhausted afterwards. And I have a workout over that sink, and it takes me 15 minutes, and my clothes are washed, and I snap them a few times, and I hang it up, and I straighten them up so they dry unwrinkled, and it works just great. Uh, a lot of people wonder, what do you do for detergent? And uh, I've never been in a hotel room that didn't have little packets of shampoo, and it works great. Yep. Shampoo. It's in the hotels. It's free. So uh, there you go. It's not a big deal. So I guess uh, you and I are recommending people... Don't bring stuff to throw away, but bring stuff to wear. I, I, yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> okay, well, well, thanks, thank you. Betsy, thanks. Now you got me in trouble with all the people that want to bring right. their old underwear and their old bras. Each person will travel the way he likes. That's a beautiful thing. Okay. Betsy, thanks for your call. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-7425, and we're sharing tips on packing smart. Caroline in Pompano Beach, Florida is on the phone. Caroline, thanks for your call. Thank you. What's your travel tip? My travel tip is really simple and easy, and it gets you through the airport a lot quicker, um, is to roll your clothes when you're putting them into your luggage. You can fit a lot more, and then when you get to your hotel, your destination, you have no wrinkles in your clothes, and you're ready to go. So you roll the clothes all together, so it's a big fat roll, or do you have a lot of little rolls? Uh, Lots of little rolls. Roll the shirts, roll the pants, and you can fit a lot more into the suitcase. Why not roll it all together in one big fat roll, a big stogie? <laughs> That's a little difficult to do. It's easier when you roll the shirts and then roll okay. the pants. And it really does work. You don't have uh, wrinkles then. No, you just take it out of the suitcase, put it in your closet, and you're ready to go. That's very nice. Uh, why do you get through airports quicker that way? Because you can fit more into the suitcase and you can stay within the weight limit since they're charging you now. You know ah. what you can get out with, which ah, okay. really so, helped me when I went to Spain. So it doesn't weigh less, but it packs smaller and you can stay within those uh, inches limits. Exactly. Huh, rolling. Okay, that's a smart tip. And I think everybody wants to find a way to pack without wrinkling. I bring a, uh, this is not very light packing, but it's one of my little guilty pleasures, I guess. I bring a packing board. And it's mm-hmm. by Eagle Creek, I think. And it's quite clever. It has a little nylon uh, sheet where I, I fold my shirts around it. And then I lay it in there. And it has a stiff board. And I have these Velcro things that wrap around it. And it lets my shirts stay unwrinkled. And that works pretty well for me. But if the rolling worked, I think that might be a nicer, a nicer uh, tactic. Yeah, give it a try. You might like it. I'll do that. Caroline in Florida, thanks for your call. Thank you. And Dick in Imperial Beach on the other side of the United States in California is on the phone with a different idea. Dick, how are you? Fine. How are you, Rick? Good. Now, you heard Caroline talk about rolling clothes. She swears by rolling clothes. (laughs) What what do you do? Well, I use a technique called bundling, which I ran onto in trying to find what, for me, would be a better way to pack to eliminate wrinkles, particularly if I have to... uh, Combine business and pleasure, that is, you know, the usual leisure clothes where you don't worry much about wrinkling and then going to some sort of formal meeting along the way where you need the uh, yeah. clothes to 
That's, work out very quickly. That's often my concern. Now, what is bundling? I, I don't. I well, don't... bundling is the idea of well, you've you've seen the pictures of let's say the ladies uh, in Africa who carry large bundles of things on their head. Yeah. Well, this is kind of an idea of that. You put your clothes, you form a core, and then you uh, put your clothes alternating links on the uh, suitcase. Huh. and then fold them in so that you end up with one great big bundle around this core. This so, core is usually your underwear and your socks and things like that. You don't care whether they get wrinkled wow. there or there. What a radical concept. And that relates more to my stogie thing that I was proposing to Caroline. Yes, yes, yeah. it actually does. It's, it's yeah. sort of, I, I never have been successful in, in folding or, or rolling. Uh, you know, I know many people are, but for me, I always end up and I say, oh my gosh, look at the wrinkles in that shirt. But, okay, so <laughs> ev- everybody's got their core that they don't care yeah. about. Their, their sweaters, their, mm-hmm. their, um, what, their underwear and their socks. Okay, yeah. and then the stuff you care about, do you fold it all together like, like petals on a flower or do you fold it yes. in like a sleeping bag rolling up or something? No, you, you fold it like petals on a flower. And that gives you a large sphere that you're wrapping around. Exactly. You know those little oranges at Christmas that have wrappings? Yes. Yep. That paper is always very wrinkled. Well, if you fold them, you'd be surprised. You don't fold them in and try to jam them into a tight pack. Okay. It's actually a rather loose packing, but it doesn't use that much uh, room. I'm a one-bag person. I never travel with more than one bag. Okay, well, this is radical, and I'm going to give that a try. Just do a search when packing by bundling, and you'll find uh, several websites devoted to people who are devoted to it. <laughs> Devotees to packing by <laughs> that's bundling. I, that's where I went on to it. And it's all right. where, I'm always one of those people who puts their bag back together at the last minute before I have to leave the hotel or the hospital right. or whatever. It takes some practice, but it works nicely. And it works for business attire. Yes. I, I, had, nice. to, I, I had a long one in which uh, almost a week into the run, going to three different cities, I ended up having to meet with the embassy and I had a blazer and a pair of slacks, which I didn't have much time to you know, get the right. wrinkles hung out, and uh, I pulled everything out, and it was in great shape. I did have to hang it up, if yeah, you always would. Of course. But... All right, Dick, great idea. Thanks so much. You're quite welcome. All right, travel unwrinkled. All right, you too. Okay, bye now. <laughs> nice talking to you, Ray. You too, bye. Bye-bye. I said in these shoes, no way, Jose. Share your thoughts with us on how to best travel light, and tell us about any faux pas you still remember from your travels. Our website's message board is always open for you to add your comments. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. If you keep a journal to remember the details of your travels, you might be able to turn your notes into a book. Marty Essen wrote for his hometown newspaper about the strange and wonderful things he and his wife found in their travels, and people liked his stories so much that he turned them into a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty joins us next to tell us some of what he found from the frigid Arctic to the steamy Amazon. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to do a little adventure travel. You know, I've just had a personal curiosity about wild nature experiences high up the Amazon or going into the frozen natural wonders of the Antarctic or getting bit by a leech. How about going to sleep under a thatched roof filled with noisy little geckos or staring down an angry hippo? These are things you just don't find in Europe. you got to go farther away to find them, and we have joining us a man who's done just that. Marty Essen and his wife, Deb, took off on a kind of a midlife crises uh, trip, it sounds like. Over three and a half years, they did eight trips to all seven continents, and Marty has written a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents, and uh, tells the story with that book. Marty, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Rick. Is it fair to call your uh, series of eight trips a midlife crises? Yeah, it definitely is. I hadn't done very much travel. I, I hadn't been overseas at all. And as I approached 39 years old, I realized I wasn't getting out and having any fun. I was just working at my day job, which is uh, running a telephone company. I'd get out on weekends. I'm here in Montana. We'd go out, we'd go mountain climbing, that sort of thing. But it was great to to go out and, and see the world. And I didn't plan on writing a book, 
when I started. Uh, we just wanted to get away. We went to Belize and had a wonderful trip. When we got back from Belize, we decided let's do something a little bit more exotic. And so we went to the Amazon jungle. And just before I left for the Amazon jungle, one of the local newspapers asked me if I would write a story about it. I had a great adventure, wrote a story about it, and had people afterwards coming up to me and saying, you know, we really love that newspaper story you wrote. Are you going to write another one? And so I did. We went to Australia. I wrote another newspaper story, had people again recognizing me from my author photo, coming up to me in restaurants or on the streets and saying, we love that. Are you going to write something else? And at that point, I realized I had a book, and uh, yeah. we ended up doing all seven continents. Well, I think part of the advantage you have is you hadn't traveled very much because there's a freshness and, a, and an exuberance in your writing that really comes across. I mean, thank you. Yes. Yeah, people who have traveled a lot kind of reminisce about how fresh everything was on the first trip, and your story is just like the whole world embraced on on this first time adventure. Definitely. And you didn't plan to write a book in the beginning. Were you taking notes or were you keeping a journal? For the first chapter, which is Belize, I had no idea I was going to write a book or write a newspaper story. So for that chapter, what I had to do is my wife and I got together and we'd recall, look through all the photos. I'm a photographer, so I had a ton of photos, and that brought back all the memories. The second chapter and the third chapter, the Amazon and Australia, I was writing for the newspaper, so I had all the notes from that. And when I went back and put it into book form, I just expanded those two chapters and put a lot more humor into it. From then on, I had notes uh, on all the travels. Now, you have a, a real passion for animals, it seems like. There's beautiful photographs in your book. I see you feeding this silver wallaroo with sort of the dreamy-eyed, loving touch of a, like a mother. <laughs> You're looking right into its eyes. Do you have a special affinity for animals? What's the deal there? When I grew up, I wanted to be a herpetologist or a zoologist. And I think it started when I was about eight years old. I had a friend whose father was a zoologist. Down in his basement, he had all these cool creatures. He had a Gila monster, and he had snakes and, and all sorts of different things. And we weren't supposed to go down there, so of course we did. And we'd sneak down there and look at all these different animals. And ever since then, I've just had this love of animals. And uh, even though I went on and ended up having a business career, I never left that love of animals. But I think you've got sort of a guy's love of gross animals and scary animals. Oh, definitely, definitely. You, you mentioned rather than stomp on a spider, you'd feed it. Oh, yeah. Actually, that was something that became a game of ours. It started in the Belize chapter. We had this great big spider in the bathroom of this hut we were staying in. And at first I tried to kill it, and then I felt kind of sorry for the spider and, and decided to feed it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of became this joke whenever we would stay someplace and we'd find a spider, we'd feed the spider and try to get it as big as we could before we left so it would be more <laughs> fierce when the next people showed up. So. Oh, there you go. And then you went down to Antarctica and you encountered penguins. Penguins are great. Antarctica was just a, an unbelievable trip. So beautiful down there. Was it really worth traveling all those miles and all that discomfort to get down to Antarctica for a pile of ice? Oh, well, there's not more than a pile of ice down there. The penguins, first of all, we had strict rules while we were down there. And the rules were we could not approach any animal closer than 15 feet. But the penguins, of course, didn't have that same rule. They could approach us as close as they wanted to, and they did. We would have little Gen 2 penguin chicks come up to us, and they'd sit and they'd pull on our pants or pull on our shoestrings and that sort of thing. And if we walked away, they'd follow us as if we were mom. Uh, and then we had some great encounters with humpback whales down there. And there's just nothing more awe-inspiring than having a humpback whale come up to you. We went out in, wow. uh, in this bay in these zodiacs, which are basically big rubber rafts. And the humpback whales would come up to us just like they were going to touch us. And, in fact, there were some people that were in the rafts with us that were nervous that the humpbacks were going to capsize our boats. Right. But they would come right up to us, and just before they touched us, they'd go underneath, and then they'd come back up on the other side with a great big blow. It was incredible. Was it, it was actually playful, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. They knew you were there, and they were just frolicking around and sort of showing yeah. off? There were three humpback whales, and two of them were, were kind of wondering if they were a little amorous. Uh, <laughs> but it was great to watch them. And when a humpback whale surfaces, their eyes are still underneath the water. But what the humpbacks would do is they would turn their bodies sideways so their eyes would be above the water, and they could see us, and we could look oh, into their eyes as they went beautiful. right by us. Oh, it was incredible. I'm speaking with Marty Essen, and he's written a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty, before we get away from Antarctica, tell me a little more about the, the penguin poo experience. <laughs> the penguin poo experience. Well, you know, I'm a photographer, and I didn't go to, to Antarctica to photograph animals from standing up and looking down at them. And one of the uncomforts, I guess, of Antarctica, especially when you're in a penguin colony, 
there's poo everywhere. And there were times I was literally down rolling in the poo to get the right picture. I had rain gear on, so it wasn't that bad, but uh, eventually I ended up having to walk a little bit into the ocean and, and wash myself off and uh, kind of came up with this little song. If anybody remembers the song Iron Man by Black Sabbath, I kind of made it, I am Guano Man. Very good. <laughs> I'm not so, much of a singer. but <laughs> No, but you're a better travel writer, so that's good. So point is you can connect with nature when you get down into Antarctica. Yes, yes. One thing about travel is it, it helps you get out of your comfort zone, and, and I think you made a point to confront some of your fears. Well, I don't get along well as far as going underneath the water. I can swim okay, but snorkeling, I don't do that great. My wife is a great scuba diver, and that was part of our travels. A lot of times what we would do is we'd have separate adventures, for instance, in Belize and off the coast of Borneo and off the coast of Australia. There would be times she would go scuba diving, then I would go out and explore the rainforest, and then we'd come mm -hmm. back at the end of the day and we'd compare adventures. Boy, that's actually very good advice for any traveling uh, duos to realize you got different passions and different things you really don't care about and uh, have an explicit understanding that, hey, when it comes time for that, you can do it alone, I'm going to do this, and we'll get back together yeah, again. and we both had great adventures. Now, you seem to have a, a real um, interest in just putting yourself in harm's way when it comes to exotic animals. Did you ever do something that was uh, regrettable? Did you have any, any real serious problems from getting bit or, or stung by any of these critters? I, I don't know that I would say a serious problem, but when I was in the Amazon jungle, my very first day, and the Amazon was something I had dreamed of going to since I was eight years old. We went down the Amazon about 70 miles from the uh, city of Iquitos, and then we went down a South Bank tributary. Uh, we stayed at a research station, and we went out on our inaugural hike. And, of course, my eyes are just wide open as I'm looking around at all this beautiful rainforest, seeing it for the very first time. And all of a sudden, I feel this pain in my leg. And what had happened is a bullet ant had crawled up my leg, and with its mandibles, it bit me. And then with its stinger, it stung me. And a bullet ant, according to some entomologists, is the most venomous insect in the entire world. And the reason they call it a bullet ant is because its sting is supposed to feel like a hit from a bullet. And that's what it did. My, my leg uh, was in incredible pain. In fact, uh, for about 24 hours, I, it felt like my leg was just going to explode. There was so much pressure in my leg. Wow. Uh, but after about 24 hours, the pain went away, and, and I had no further problems after that. But I certainly avoided it. When you go to a place like the Amazon, you put yourself in harm's way when it comes to uh, dangerous insects and so on. I mean, there's some serious problems that you could find yourself in. Well, yeah, and, and what I was doing is was probably not the smartest thing, but what my goal was down in the Amazon was to find a fertile ants, which is the deadliest snake in the Western Hemisphere. It's not the most venomous snake, but it's deadly because its camouflage is so good that it's so easy for people to step on. They're attracted to villages because a lot of the villages, you know, there's rodents around, uh, so these villagers will end up stepping on these snakes, and they're far away from any doctor. What happens when you step on it? Well, it's, a snake's going to defend itself, and the snake's going to bite these you. people, and, and you they're die. walking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't die instantly, but you would die pretty darn quickly. Just a nice, uh, slow snake bite death. Yeah. Did you get inhabited by any creatures? I mean, I have heard people say there is actually a little worm in the Amazon that can crawl up, excuse my graphicness, but your urine when you're, when you're taking a pee out in the jungle, and it actually crawls up the stream and goes inside of you. Well, it happens when you're underwater, when you're in the river. And I read a, several different accounts of this. And one of the books I have called Smithsonian Animal actually talks about this. And it says that, you know, if you, if you go to the bathroom and in the water, it's called a canadrew. And what it will do, it'll swim up your urine and then up your urethra and then lodge itself in there. And the only way to get it out is through surgery. So this is underwater. So it knows the warmth will lead exactly. it to a body it can inhabit. Uh-huh. And then I, oh. I read another book uh, called The Neurotropical Companion, and he did some investigation on this and could never find a documented case of this. So okay. I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but the Smithsonian Animal Book actually had that in there. So, And I tend to trust the Smithsonian. Well, we've done our share right now to perpetuate that, that story, mm -hmm. whether it's true or not. I'm speaking with Marty Essen, and Marty is a rookie traveler who decided, hey, I got to get out there and see the world. And he took eight trips over three and a half years, visited all seven continents, lived to tell about it, and tells about it very well in his book, Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty, in your book, you talk about scary animals that actually don't deserve such a bad reputation, like good, evil animals. What, what do you mean by that? 
Well, for instance, uh, when we were in Belize, my wife and I went into this cave that was filled with vampire bats. You know, when most people hear about me going to this cave with vampire bats, they go, ooh, vampire bats. Well, first of all, the bats didn't attack us or anything. We were able to get very close to them. In fact, I took some pictures from probably about three or four inches away from some of these little vampire bats, and they're, they're kind of about the size of a mouse. But one of the interesting things about vampire bats is their saliva contains the most effective anticoagulant known to man. And so what scientists have been able to do is they've taken this anticoagulant and they've turned it into a drug called Draculin. And now that's being used to save people who have had heart attacks or strokes. So this animal that uh, humans might want to eradicate has actually become a lifesaver. This drug is called Dracula? It's called Draculin, yeah. Somebody had a sense of humor. It's an anticoagulant that makes your blood thinner. Okay. Uh, so if you've had a stroke or something like that, you can, uh, a doctor can administer this Draculin, and, and it'll lessen the effects of the stroke or a heart attack. Or you can just pull out your vampire bat and let him suck on your neck. Yeah, that would probably work, too. I mean, these are called vampire bats for good reason, aren't they? They bite you? Well, yeah, they bite you, and the reason they have the anticoagulant is they don't necessarily suck the blood, but what they do is they bite, they make a hole, and uh, the anticoagulant will make the animal that they bit continue to bleed. And so they've taken that and synthesized it into a drug. And there's another example. There's a venomous snake down in Brazil. It only has a scientific name, but it's a close relation to the fertile ants. And scientists have been able to take the venom from this snake and uh, they've turned it into an effective drug for people with diabetes, high blood pressure, and kidney disease. Hmm. So it's another animal with a bad reputation that's uh, become a lifesaver. And it's one of the things I talk about a lot in my book because you never know with some of these animals that people may want to eradicate for one reason or another what good they might do for humans down the line as we learn more about these animals. Boy, there's a lesson there. There's always connections in this fascinating interwoven ecosystem. Tell me about leeches. Did you ever get attacked by a leech? <laughs> yeah, in Borneo. Uh, basically, every ecosystem that I went into, whether it was the Amazon jungle where we had mosquitoes or it was in uh, tsetse flies in Africa, almost every area we would have some type of annoying bug or insect that we had to deal with. And in Borneo, it was land leeches. Uh, sometimes they're called tiger leeches or rainbow leeches. And the leeches, just like the vampire bats, inject an anticoagulant. And they would crawl along the ground, and usually you wouldn't see them, and they'd uh, somehow get into your socks. Mm. And uh, they'd inject the anticoagulant, and e either they'd drop off or you'd finally notice it on your ankle, and you'd pull it off, and you'd start bleeding. So part of backpacking in Borneo was just knowing that you were going to walk around with bloody socks all the time. But of all the annoying creatures out there, I think they're my favorite because they, they don't carry any diseases, their bite doesn't hurt. And the bloody socks is just kind of a souvenir. You, you know. Yeah, the bloody socks is a souvenir and it makes a good story, but uh, sure you know, they're, they're really not that big of a problem other than the fact that they make you bleed. Marty, did you ever figure out what all eight trips cost you and your wife over the whole experience? Just well, I, I had a lot of frequent flyer miles, so... If you converted the frequent flyer miles into money, right. it would probably would have been about $100,000. So eight trips, you spent 100000 and you went to all these exotic, incredible places from Borneo to Antarctica to the upper reaches of the Amazon. Sounds like a, a great, great period in your life, three and a half years. What did it teach you about just about America? You, you saw America from every different perspective, it seems like. There are so many distant perspectives. How did that affect your understanding of our, our country's place on this planet? First of all, what, what a small planet we do live on. And the timing of my trips was unique, and I could have never planned this, but we ended up, for instance, leaving to Belize on George Bush's inauguration day. So that kind of starts at three and a half years. And then later on, when we end up going down to Antarctica, we go on a boat with people from 14 different countries, and we'd leave uh, the southern tip of South America. We'd leave Ushuaia on the day after the world's largest anti-war protest. And we're going down there with people from Germany, from Czechoslovakia, from France, uh, from Mexico, people from 14 different countries. And we're all wondering, you know, we can get along. You know, why can't our world leaders get along? And we also had the awful feeling of being away from communications and knowing that we could come back and find the world at war. We were gone for about two weeks. You know. And then the next trip after that, we end up in Malaysian Borneo, and Malaysia is a Muslim country, and we land there the day after Saddam Hussein's statue came down. 
So, and then we ended up in France when uh, Freedom Fries and Freedom Toast were in the news. So we hit all these places just at that certain time in history. Poignant time to be away from home looking back at home. It really was. And one of the things that I thought was real interesting is I talked to different people. I probably talked to people from 25 different countries during my travels. And I was always amazed at how much they knew about America. In fact, I think they know more about America than Americans know about their own country. They would be able to talk about a certain senator or, or a certain politician yeah. from the 60s that wow. I wouldn't even know. I was just, it would amaze me how much they knew about us. And regardless of your politics, uh, how did they accept you as an American? Did you feel the heat for their feelings about our foreign policy or, or did they kind of cut you some slack? No, I didn't feel any heat at all, which, which surprised me, especially when I went into Malaysian Borneo. Mm-hmm. I, a lot of curiosity. They seem to be able to separate the American government from the American traveler. And so I never had any problems at all. Whether I was in France or wherever, people treated me with respect and and with kindness. That's a great thing. I found that in my travels also. Marty, also, you did a lot of um, stressful things with your wife. Uh, How did it affect your relationship? Oh, I, I suppose it made it stronger. My wife is just one of the bravest people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, nothing seems to scare her. And uh, I never realized just quite how brave she was until we started traveling. You learn more about her by going through this uh, exotic travel ringer with her over these years. Oh, absolutely. And then when you finally got back to Montana, uh, just Marty Essen, who hadn't really traveled much at all, you're back in Montana. Are you in any sense a cultural hybrid now? Uh, what kind of culture shock in reverse did you experience? Culture shock in reverse. That's a tough question. I guess the, the main culture shock is I want to get out there again. And I'm so anxious to visit other places. You, it gets in your blood, as you know, and I can't wait for the next trip. I guess things seem kind of tame coming back to Montana. Boy, it's been great talking to you. I've been speaking with Marty Essen. He writes a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty, I'm sure you're going to have some uh, great travels to report on in the future. Thanks a lot for sharing with us, and best wishes. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. You bet. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Todd Clark at Clear Channel Missoula for studio help today. If you'd like to be a caller on a future edition of the program, go to the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com and sign up to be notified of our next recording sessions and topics. You'll also find links to our guests and audio archives of every show we've produced. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European experience, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.